Hello and welcome to another edition of Pathfinders, the podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that explores the fast-moving world of biopharma and healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. In this episode, you'll hear a venture capital roundtable discussion that we recently held in partnership with Endpoints News. RBC's own Noel Brown, our head of U.S. Biotechnology Investment Banking, moderated the conversation around how venture capital firms are reacting to challenging market conditions and trends that are shaping the biotech funding ecosystem. You'll gain valuable insight into VC capital raising strategies and learn what will separate the winners from the losers in this new funding landscape. This episode features three very special VC guest panelists. Jarrell Davis, Managing Director at Versant Ventures, Otello Stampaccia, Founder and Managing Director at Omega Funds, and Simeon George, CEO and Managing Partner at SR1. Now let's get into today's episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Noel Brown, Managing Director and Head of U.S. Biotechnology Investment Banking at RBC Capital Markets. And today I'm here with Endpoints News. And thank you for joining us for uh, today's discussion, which would be when to call it quits. VCs making tough decisions in a tough market. The focus of our discussion today will be to explore how VC firms are navigating the current landscape and the uh, significant trends within biotech funding ecosystem that are creating new market dynamics for both biotech companies and investors. Uh, We're sponsored today by RBC Capital Markets, and I am thrilled and excited to be moderating today's expert panel. Maybe um, I can turn it first to Atello and then have uh, Simeon and Gerald um, chime in along that. But, um, you know, with the public markets in what some might characterize as utter disarray, you know, are we experiencing right now a renaissance in private capital markets? Yeah, and, and well, as you know, I, I take a little bit of objection to using the word disarray. I think to put this in context, there still have been not many, but a few successful public offerings. It's just that the profile of the type of companies for which public specialist investors have appetite has reverted back to what used to be the case five, six years ago, which is you know clinical stage companies with relatively near-term milestones. So I think we've seen those go out and, and, and if follow-on offerings are any indications, there's still demand for those type of stories as well. I think in terms of the prominence of the private versus public markets, again, my perspective is that they're just on different uh, clocks, timeline or lag function, if you will, right? Public markets are more reflexive versus corrections, macro factors. And again, from, from my personal view, the aberrations perhaps were 2018, 2019, 2020, more or less, uh, versus history. Uh, private markets work on very different timelines. I mean, most of our funds right, are 10 year plus, you know, one, two, three, whatever year extensions. Uh, we usually deploy that capital, not often, but usually we deploy during two or three years plus reserves. And therefore, that makes that type of capital a lot stickier. But even on the private side, uh, outside of, you know, whatever, the 10, 15, 20 funds that are relatively well established in our business, there's been a lot of influx of capital from what I affectionately call tourists. (laughs) Um, And and people love tourists when they visit, but what happens is they usually go home. And and in the case of Anglo-Saxon tourists, they go home with a bit of a sunburn and, and perhaps in shorts. 
Um, so, uh, so again, we need to put that in context. No offense to any Anglo-Saxons who are on this call, by the way. Um, I just think cost of capital is obviously gone up. That has repercussions for the type of companies that, that go public, for when you go public, for the type of companies that we fund and what type of projects these companies should fund, right? Because you are super early, uh, five, six years away from the clinic in, in a difficult to the risk indications. I think that probably takes a lot less of a priority than other things, certainly in the private, in the public market, but I would think also to a large extent in the private markets. So that's my view, but again, we shouldn't, I mean, history is always a good teacher. And, and in my opinion, we are going back to what used to be slightly normal market. And, and there's also a bit of an, a reaction, right? Because a number of public funds were also burned a bit. So there's a delay, but you know, for what I'm seeing lately in the follow-on markets, and and well, you know, the market better than I do, uh, there's still huge appetite for stories that are clinical and de-risked. You know, it's funny because you talked about the uh, the tourists, and it sort of brings up that age-old debate about, you know, are you do you blame the the drug abuser or the drug dealer, right? Because <laughs> the tourists were drawn in by the companies that you know you guys created, and then. Uh, the markets were fed these. I mean, they were put out for, you know, public distribution, partly because you guys saw an opportunity to sell it, right? So, I mean, I don't think you can be blamed for putting those companies out there, but at the same time, I wonder if the tourists are, you know, the drug user. Oh, we got them addicted. Oh, so, so, sorry to interrupt, and, and I don't want to make this. I mean, obviously, there's there's a few people on this call. I certainly don't shouldn't monopolize this, but. And by the way, thank you for the analogy to drug dealers. It's very flattering. Uh, I mean, we do deal in drugs, right? That's what we invest in at the end of the day. So it's not completely unapt. But I do think our, you know, brethren, if you will, bear some responsibility for a number of companies going public a bit too early, in my opinion. Now, you know, I can claim perhaps some of us were a bit of an exception, uh, but, you know, we all, and again, it comes down to the cost of capital. Uh, investors in general and, and management teams are very sensitive to cost of capital because cost of capital is directly related to dilution. And if there is one bad word for venture capitalists or investors in general, is dilution. So, uh, which is silly perhaps, but it is the way we function. Um, so, so I do think, yeah, the, the ecosystem overall, and again, I can claim some of us might be exceptions, uh, needs to be blamed a bit for having put out companies that, in my opinion, were a bit immature onto the public markets, because a number of those now have no news for one or two years, and, and therefore they have a really hard time attracting the attention of what end up being very distressed and very distracted public investors at the moment. I'll stop here. I don't want to monopolize this. It's an important topic. Simeon, do you want to offer some thoughts on, on the issue? I think I think Attila's covered it well. Thanks, Noel, for hosting today. Yeah, I think... You know, I, I, candidly, you know, I think what the world looks like today, if you're an entrepreneur, startup, or venture firm with interest rates closer to five or six than what it did two years ago at zero, I mean, that's the reality, the stark reality is like we just live in a different world now, right? So I think it means we all have to sort of adjust the business models, how to think about accessing capital, cost of capital remains the the prohibitive sort of, uh, you know, backdrop against which we're all we're all facing uh, how to continue to to fund and and build companies, right? So I think when cost of capital was much lower, you know, we had all these different ways to continue to push things forward, and it made sense because you want to be able to lower your cost of capital, raise from as diverse set of investors as you can, and hopefully the you know the companies that have the the true innovation and products that are going to have 
clinical benefit um, will will you know be able to take advantage of that, right? And I think the constrained environment that we're living in now is forcing all of us uh, to to reassess sort of how what the business model is, right? So, you know, I think private there is more capital now, but there's the challenges we just talked about. Publics is much more discerning. Handful have gone out. I was just watching the Acceleron Roadshow last night with Shaoli and her team. You know, it's going to be that caliber of team assets. Uh, amount of capital raised, amount of capital required, right? Those are the ones that right now make sense in this current market backdrop and probably for the foreseeable future. I don't have much to add, Noel. I think I'd, I'd say on the question of, are we going back to the, the future or more correctly, are we going back to the past? Uh, I think the answer is yes and no. You know, yes, there's been a dramatic pullback. You know, yes, uh, investors are standing on the sidelines. Uh, yes, there's a refocus on later stage assets. You know, there's going to be a changing of the garden VC and a transition within pharma. Um, on the no side, you know, there is more capital within the funds than there ever was in the previous pullback. Um, there is an LOE issue with pharma that's driving the MA we're seeing and it's going to continue to drive, you know, a huge amount of appetite from pharma. Uh, innovation's faster than it's ever been uh, before. And then we have a really rich SMID ecosystem, probably three to five times the number of companies in that 0.5 to $2 billion range, which is going to provide other opportunities. So it's yes, it's it's going back to the past, but there's also some some um, you know differences from the past. You know, should the private markets go through rena renaissance? You know, absolutely. You know, if a renaissance is defined as you know an era trying to surpass the ideas and the achievements of the past, um, the first step is trying to define for ourselves, you know, what are we really trying to uh, uh, surpass in terms of past achievements. And we need to do that without indexing on 20 and 2020 and 2021, because if we index on 2020 and 2021, we're going to set the goals wrong. And the hardest part is changing mentality, you know, at the investor level, at the board level, at the management level, um, because we're, we're kind of still stuck in 2020, 2021, many of us. So I definitely hear you on uh, being mindful of what the metrics are that we sort of assess that we are trying to surpass because hopefully it's not number of companies. Cause I think as we all agree right now, there simply just are too many in the ecosystem. And, um, you know, look, regrettably, some of them are going to have to go right there. We're going to have to have some shrinkage in the population. And for you all, that may not necessarily mean selling them, but could include just shutting them down. And so kind of in that van, I'm wondering, you know, what are the hallmarks of the companies that aren't going to make it? Would you like anybody in particular to take the hot potato or should we just- yep. Maybe, uh, Simeon, do you want to kick this one off and we'll have uh, Tello and Gerald chime in? Are, are not going to make it, right? No? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, can't remember which, uh, there's a riff on a quote uh, about if you look at uh, functional families, they all they all sort of look maybe the same way dysfunctional families are dysfunctional in in any number of different instances. And, and I think there's some truth to that. I think, you know, the quality of companies that are not gonna make it, I think Gerald was, was touching on the point, this point, like there's accountability that goes all around the table, right? So it's entrepreneurs and management teams that candidly start with like a basic premise of being financially numerate, like know how to run a business with within their means, right? Within the amount of capital that they have, and not believing that there's going to be this pot of gold on the other side of a rainbow that they're going to be able to access from insiders or from uh, new investors, whether it's private or public. So sort of understanding how much you have in the bank, understanding how are you going to use that money, 
to be able to continue to manifest the true potential of your startup. Like it starts like fundamentally with that. So it's like scientists, entrepreneurs, whatever your background is, like you need to know how to run a business. Like that I think is the premise that we all need to sort of maybe have taken for granted, but I think it's critical and companies that can't do that candidly don't deserve to be in business. I think the 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 board members, you know, the folks around the table here, we have a responsibility ultimately to, to sort of assess the capabilities of those management teams to be able to execute along those lines. Like, are they numerate? Can they understand the challenges of their business? Do they have a way to mitigate risks? Do they have the right capabilities within the company? And I'm not talking about science at the moment. I'm just talking about like pure operations of running a startup. I think just some of the onus now comes on each of us to really think about strategically, what does it mean to be a venture capitalist trying to help build and scale a business in the way that probably we haven't done before. And so there are frankly going to be board members and investors that are going to be lazy and are going to basically check out of those discussions. And that doesn't lead to a productive way of working through whatever the company is going through. And then of course you need to have science. You know, I've heard uh, John Euler said to me recently, science is like math. At the end, you're either right or you're wrong. And so ultimately the companies that aren't successful are the ones that don't have products that make sense when it comes to what they're trying to achieve from a clinical and biological proof of concept, right? So when you put those things together, an incompetent team that doesn't know how to run a business, a board that doesn't know what their fiduciary duties are to help assess and sort of guide the management team and technology or products that aren't working, that's a recipe for what should be companies that should should not deserve to continue to go on um, into the future. You make some great points there about the need to have management teams that can actually operate right beyond the science. And I know Tell and I were talking about this and I forget to tell you had a stat about, you know, just that reflected sort of how, I don't know, I want to use the right word, uh, inexperienced management teams are, because again, there's been a need to create so many new companies and provide new management teams, but, you know, maybe you can speak on that point, Tell. Yeah, so obviously there's 1,500 plus people attending, so I'm, I'll make sure that every single one of them never speaks to me again. <laughs> but no, I think there is, I mean, this is ultimately not just what we do, like, you know, Gerald, Simeon, myself, but, but you know, our business is fundamentally an apprenticeship business, right? You, you start with a hopefully understanding of the science and then you build understanding of development and connectivity and so on. There's definitely a number of issues that the, pile on top of what, and perhaps are corollaries of some of the macro issues that Simeon mentioned. And, and some of them include, and I'm really leery about discussing this, but that said, I never fear being unpopular. So one of them includes tidal inflation, right? That there's been, as you mentioned, the need, and again, people like us are a bit guilty in that, to staff so many new companies. By the way, many of them going after the same targets, which is also in the long term at the community level kind of suicidal, right? But, you know, that perhaps is a topic for another day when you assess pipelines like, like we all do. But, but, you know, tidal inflation is a challenge, not just because obviously it brings burns up, though that is an issue. Uh, and, and I am aware of the absorbed privilege from which I'm speaking, just to, to be completely transparent. But, but apart from the comp issue, there is a competence issue, right? And, and when it comes to you know, enrolling, getting the right manufacturing partners, getting the right patients into trials, mistakes there are very dear uh, in terms of time and therefore burns. And one all of a sudden cost of capital goes up, like you know, Simeon mentioned, 
then there are, there are cascading issues. So I think, you know, I don't think that's the root of our problems, but it's definitely a pretty big branch, if I were to use some more hard metaphor there. There are other stuff, like I, mean, I mentioned, I mean, one of the, the biggest discussions we usually have with companies that we are either thinking about investing in or thinking or even putting together is, okay, you got this mousetrap or, or a technology platform, as we say, what, what are the product configurations that you should go after? And many, many, many times, unfortunately, the people who came up with the platform who are good at building and developing the platform are not necessarily going to be good at telling you that. So this is something that is a real challenge. I think we all face it within our portfolio companies. I think we have tried to build some kind of in-house screening tool to help them out. Because the problem is you need to look at what's currently in phase twos and phase threes. Because again, I don't understand American sports, but to use a metaphor, to skate where the puck is going. I think Gerald will correct me on that one if it's wrong. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter what, what's out there now. It matters what's out there in five or six years if you're in preclinical, right? So again, these are all issues that, that come up all the time, but they're much more acute when capital is scarce. And when now, there is a silver lining to this, which at the individual company and, and perhaps even management team member level is not reassuring, but at the community level, it eventually will be. And the silver lining is that these are actually healthy periods for the ecosystem. I know it doesn't sound great when you know, you're considering a reduction in force within your company and all that. But again, I, I unfortunately have been doing this for 25 plus years. And the best years for investing in our businesses, which eventually leads to good drugs, have been historically 2003, 2004, 2005, just after the dot-com burst, right? 2010-ish, 11, 12, after Lehman, right, in 2008-2009. And I'm really confident that the next two or three years are going to be great years. Because guess what? You know, necessity is the mother of all invention. And when there's too much capital, uh, too many people going for a senior job, even though they're not super ready for it, which is ultimately a disservice to themselves, not just to patients, I just don't think it's good for the ecosystem. So, you know, we, you know, people like us, and, and I'm, you know, with Simon and Gerald, we unfortunately have been doing this a bit. It is a, a bit our job, right? Not just our duty, but our job to try to enforce a little bit of discipline, which is never a happy message, right? I mean, you're always the grumpy board member will say, well, you know, we should be careful about having too many programs too far away from the clinic, blah, blah, blah. And people look at you like you're an old fart, right? But eventually, reality reestablishes itself. So, so I don't, you know, again, from the absurd privilege vantage point that I have, this is healthy for the ecosystem. It is not great for individual persons or companies, for sure. Right. You started talking about almost a, a cyclical Darwinism, right? Like it's uh, it is. A, a calling of, of these entities. And Gerald, you know, I were talking about this as well. I mean, I we try not to kill anybody, just to be clear. <laughs> I, I just think people need to find really the best fit of their aspirations versus their capabilities, right? If you think about strategy, that's ultimately what strategy is. Here's what I would like to do as a company, where right? I like to build this rug and so on. And these are my capabilities. And ultimately, sorry to interrupt, no, this, this no. is what Seema was talking about earlier, which is, well, you know, if you are not numerate, right, not just at the financial level, but if you cannot run your business to make that match between aspiration and capabilities, there's a problem. So sorry to interrupt. Michara, what's your thought? I think it's been covered. I mean, I think it's easier to answer the questions of which companies should persist 
then which companies should not? You know, in my mind, which companies should persist? It's pretty simple. It's, you know, are the companies fundamentally in a valuable business and with an eye towards competition? And I think that's what, as an ecosystem, we didn't do a great job of over the last time period. I think number two, as Simeon and Otello have highlighted, is the management team able to, in a mercenary way, deploy capital and resources against the most value-creating elements of that company. And then number three, which is the thing that's changed so rapidly and so radically, is you know, do, do the capital needs of the, of the plan overlap with financeability? And when the equity markets have pulled back as quickly as they, they have, it just puts everyone in disarray regarding, you know, do the capital needs of the, the previous plan over, overlap with financeability? Absolutely not. The financeability has really changed. So that, that's the challenge. That's the change. But it really comes down to those three things. We will see a number of companies continue to go away. And I think it's those fundamentals that'll mark the companies that will, will succeed. And have all three of you thought about like how those companies actually go away? I mean, obviously the hope is to merge them with something else and combine these capabilities and make a better, you know, Nuco. But what if, you know, one of them is just not combinable with anything? It's just, everyone's disinterested. Like it was just a bad call. What happens to the bad calls? I mean, but we're, we're seeing those examples every day, Noel. I mean, we're seeing dissolutions, we're seeing reverse mergers, we're seeing combinations. You know, at the beginning of this, everyone thought, oh, there's going to be a bunch of reverse mergers, not sure the other paths will be taken. But no, we're at the point where we're seeing these examples every day. And, you know, that mid ecosystem will decline in number over the next two, three years, but it takes a while to work through all that. Yeah, no, I, we definitely are seeing that activity picking up and it seems like every company that originally had planned for, you know, a back half 2023 IPO is first exploring a potential reverse merger opportunity, which is really, um, you know, created a lot of, it, it's a different dynamic right now, um, to say, you know, to say the least. And no, maybe I would just add, you know, I don't think it's necessarily just for, quote unquote, like the distressed companies to be thinking through these various creative constructs. You know, I actually think there's something to be said about companies that are actually, you know, have got high quality teams, good investors, capital to be thinking about like, how do you in this, and I think to Atello's point, if you take the view, this is a period of time where you're going to see amazing companies that come through. How do you build enduring companies? And there's some thesis around critical mass and consolidation around talent capabilities, products, pipelines with the right resourcing then to be able to move forward. And so I would encourage, you know, frankly, all companies, uh, folks that are on here to be thinking about this creative, like you just don't know what's right now. There's probably any, any number of different spin-ins, spin-outs, combinations are possible and, and could lead to something that could either accelerate the trajectory of a really interesting company today or create additional optionality or, or do other things that I think you know, could could make it quite interesting for for that company specifically. But again, going back to Atella's point at the sort of the portfolio level, I do think this is such a dynamic and exciting time to be in the shoes of a investor, entrepreneur, founder, right? That has the belief around how to build and scale an important business. Maybe Noel, there's a question audience which is really related to this, if I may. And Simon, hopefully, I wasn't interrupting you. Forgive me, but. Um, so I think there's two parts, right? You know, what you ask is the how, right? And, and I believe the title is when, right? So you have the when and when the how. And 
perhaps, you know, I, I am usually accused of being excessively logical, which I can't quite understand why it's an accusation, in my opinion, but God help my wife. Um, but fundamentally, I think to me, the when needs to happen before the how, right? And, and the when is, okay, well, again, as Simon will say, you need to, Simeon will say, you need to make an assessment as a board member, as an investor, and as a management team of what have I got, right? What are my capabilities? Do I have a phenomenal management team? Yes or no. Do I have uh, a super strong technology platform product profile? You know, yes or no. Do I have extremely supporting investors who have reserved to get me through the quote unquote valley of death, whatever that is, right? In terms of getting from preclinical to clinical or maybe from initial experiments on a platform to a partnership, all that kind of stuff. So once you have assessed where you are on that scale of capabilities versus your aspirations, I, I keep coming back to this because it's a fabulous book. It's called Grand Strategy. I'm sure you all have read it. If you haven't, please read it. Then you can discuss the how, right? And, and I think we all have mental images within our investment teams of, okay, these are the superstar teams. These are teams that probably in the bid on help for something or these teams are not necessarily performing, right? And, and in addition to that mental image, we then say, okay, well, how many IL31, whatever, am I going to invest, right, in the, in the ecosystem? I just threw up just one target that, that I had in mind yesterday for some reason. Um, but the how then is, is what, what Simeon and you guys were talking about, right? You, you say, okay, sometimes, you know, this is not going to be financeable. Let's salvage whatever we can, which is, by the way, a perfectly legitimate way of, you know, this is called venture capital, non, you know, assured capital, right? So there is an element of risk in everything we do, and then there is a fundamental element of risk in our business. Now, the mitigating factor, and this is where I'm going to just about to contradict myself here, to be completely transparent, but as, you know, Scott Fitzgerald said once, you need to be able, if you're intelligent, to hold two different notions in your head at the same time. So, so the contradicting factor is that actually some of the best stories in our business uh, in terms of drugs making impact on patients, it come from individuals that have persevered against all odds, right? From a cyclics, a, a bunch of stories like that. So I think far be from me, so to speak, from saying you are a very talented person, you see something that you believe in, then you should pursue it. But at the same time, a part of the job is also to convince people like us. And unfortunately, some of our community uh, is really affected by recency bias, right? So, oh, the world is ending. Uh, you know, let's let's just entrench just because we need to change a little bit of pattern recognition. Well, I, again, I like to think that for most of us in the business, we we listen, we will listen to logical, compelling arguments. So I think you know, perseverance is a virtue, stubbornness, you know, not, but where do you draw the line? And this is really the job of the management teams to have their constructive discussion. After that, yes, you close it, you merge it, you, you try to do a reverse merger because now there's a lot of public companies who unfortunately are not delivering. So what all of you have touched on is investing and creating strategy in a changing market. Like it, it's, a, it's dynamic, right? As Simon, you were saying, and Gerald, you and I were talking about this yesterday. You're having to put corporate finance strategies in place like capital raising plans in place, making assumptions about what a market is going to be, right? You're making assumptions about what target to pursue based on what the zeitgeist is in biopharma focused on, right? Because when you go back five years, it was six, maybe six years, 
totally all about IL, right? You had to be focused in some form of immuno-oncology. And if, and if I came to you with something like an obesity company, you'd be like, yeah, completely disinterested. You got to, you know, sharpen your pencil. And then we look at the landscape now, right? This focus on metabolic is in incredibly exciting. We're focusing on all these things. And, you know, I mean, Gerald, maybe we can offer some views on this because this whole changing of the guards is, uh, I sort of took it from our conversation, was really interesting to me. No, I think it's a great question, Noel. And the changes in the therapeutic areas of interest with investor backing that farmers are getting credit for, I, I think have never been sharper in this shorter period of time, with the exception of the late 90s to the early 2000s. In the last five years, we've seen three major dynamics at, at work, in, in my view. You know, one is the shift in the therapeutic areas driving value. We've seen now um, you know, in obesity and cardiovascular and the incretin memetics becoming some of the most valuable products you know, now and in, in the future. We've seen in CNS and Alzheimer's disease, some you know, debatable, but some value creating uh, drugs come through and in immunology as well. We've seen oncology, you know, less of that. I think precision oncology and immuno-oncology have, have had fewer stories succeed. Uh, investors have pulled back in the public markets and the private markets in oncology and shifted towards those other areas. And, and again, the farmers are being rewarded. And if you look at the pharma leaderboard uh, of mar by market cap, um, the changes are quite remarkable. You know, Lilly and Nova were eight and nine five years ago. They're now two and three. Uh, Novartis, Pfizer, and GSK have all moved way down. AstraZeneca has moved up on the back of you know immunology and IO. So the shifts in the leaderboard of pharma are dramatic. You know who's going to make deals, who's going to buy assets, is therefore also changed very very rapidly from the pharma point of view. Um, you know, and, and then as I said earlier, I think the LOE uh, uh, loss of expiry patent crisis that's going to happen in the second half of the decade is going to really impact how each of these pharmas think, um, you know, how are they going to recover those revenues? Um, in many cases, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I agree with Otello. And for pharmas, uh, we're going to have to rethink some of the therapeutic areas they're in because they may not be able to recover the revenues in those same therapeutic areas. Um, so yeah, it's a sharp change. And, and stories like obesity, cardiovascular, renal, uh, immunology, which were much less attractive five years ago, are now where, where so much of the investment is going. Um, and ecology and, and rare disease and, and other areas are, are kind of less in favor. Not that there's not great opportunities, but they're less in favor than they were, you know, one or two years ago. That concludes our Endpoints News rebroadcast episode. To listen to the full webinar on demand, which includes the audience Q&A, visit our website, at rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. You can also watch the full webinar on Endpoints News website. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pathfinders and Biopharma, brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. This episode was recorded on June 2nd, 2023. If you'd like to learn more or continue the conversation, please contact us directly or visit our website at rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. If you're enjoying Pathfinders and Biopharma, don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you all next time. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. 
It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.